All right, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Actually, we're, we're actually going to back up just a couple of verses. We're going to pick up our reading in verse 24, just to get a little bit of context this morning. And we'll read down to verse 13 this morning for our study. So it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw... No one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And so, Lord, would you honor the reading of your word this morning? Would you go before us, Lord, in our study? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? We look forward, God, to what you have for us. So pour out your spirit in this place and minister to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my parents go glamping. They call it glamping. It's a blend of the words glamour and camping. You see, they don't contend with sleeping in sleeping bags or hauling water from the stream. Nope. 
They're hooked up to a water line, a sewer line. They have electricity, even Wi-Fi. It's possible for them to go camping and never even have to go outside. Their camper is, is decked out with all the same furnishings as our living rooms, our bedrooms, our kitchens. You see, they leave their home and they tow behind them all the features and all the amenities of their actual home. And I got to say, it's pretty awesome. But here's the question. Are we doing the same thing in our spiritual lives? Are we towing behind us all the comfortable patterns of our old life? Instead of, as Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. Right? He, he gives his, his disciples this hard saying that, that we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 16. Right? In fact, Jesus is defining to us what being a disciple looks like. What it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, if you desire, if it's your desire to follow him, he says to deny yourself. He says to pick up your cross and to follow him. That's what being a disciple means. You know, it's interesting. Every disciple is a Christian, but I'm not sure every Christian is actually a disciple. Right? Because it, it takes something. It requires sacrifice to truly follow Jesus. He says it. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. You know, the, the cross only had one purpose. And this is not something that, that the disciples mistaked or mistook. They knew exactly what Jesus meant and what he was saying when he says, pick up your cross. The cross had one purpose, right? It was an unrelenting instrument of death. That was it. That was its purpose. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's He's not saying that this is a journey to go on. No, he's saying this is a one-way trip. If you take up your cross, it only leads one place. It's not a round-trip ticket. There's one destination. It had one purpose. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. Right? Jesus never said that following him, Jesus never said that being his disciple would be an easy thing, a comfortable journey. No, he said it was going to require sacrifice. Can I ask you this morning, what have you sacrificed for him? Or are we trying to carry all that stuff with us, all those comfortable patterns that we have become accustomed to and that we love so much and that we refuse to part with. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself means to, to live as others-centered first. Right? I uh, had a friend years ago tell me, like, you know, 
you know, I really struggle with, with low self-esteem. I said, great. Praise the Lord. That's scriptural. Right? Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians? Right? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us each esteem others better than himself. See, the, the truth that Jesus teaches us is that we are to deny ourselves. We are to put him first. We are to put others first. I went on a missions trip years ago when I was in high school. Uh, we went to Puerto Rico. And everyone on the mission trip team, we all had the same t-shirt. And it was a simple t-shirt. It just had the number three on it. And it created a great conversation because when people, because we kind of looked like a team, but we all had the same number. You know, when people asked, like, well, what does the three mean? And it was a reminder that we come third. Jesus comes first. Others come second. We come third. And it was just a wonderful reminder that that's, what it means to deny ourselves, to say it's not about me, it's about him. That everything we do should be centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the human nature, right, is to indulge self, right? At our core, that's what we want. We want to indulge ourselves. Jesus says, no, deny self. Deny self. He says to take up your cross Take up your cross. It could only mean one thing. It means you are going to a certain death, right? That's the only purpose that a cross has, was to execute self, to put an end to self, and that our only hope is in the resurrection power of Jesus. That's where our hope is. That's what we are looking to. You know, and in, and in chapter 17, you know, as we move into chapter 17, we get a glimpse of what that looks like. We get a glimpse of the resurrection power as we see Jesus in his glory. You know, the first 13 verses of chapter 17 are dealing with the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Right, a transformation that shows us, that gives us a glimpse of his glory, his majesty, his magnificence. You know, in chapter 16, as we looked at last week, Jesus asks a couple questions, right? He's talking to his disciples and he's asking them, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And his disciples answer and they're like, well, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, Some say you're Jeremiah. Others say that you're one of the prophets. You know, and then Jesus asks them the all-important question, right? Okay, well, if that's what men say that I am, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Right, and this this was Peter's shining moment, right? Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right? Peter gets it right. right. And Jesus says that, he says, well done, Peter, right? That flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Well, as we come into chapter 17, you know, as, as chapter 16 tells us what men say Jesus is, 
Right, chapter 16 asks the question of who do we say, who do you say that Jesus is? And in chapter 17, we find out who God says Jesus is. Right, we have a cloud forming there on the mountain, and we have the voice of the Heavenly Father, God the Father, proclaiming who Jesus is. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, as we consider what it means to to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to consider what it means to truly sacrifice for him, to lay it all down and say, God, this is yours, right? To say, like Isaiah said, who will go? Send me. God, how can I be used? How can I be a part of your kingdom and to be fruitful for your work? And in verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put the transfiguration directly after this statement. Right? Jesus makes this statement. Some of you standing here won't taste death until you have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, they all jump right into this passage where Jesus is transfigured. They see the Son of Man in his glory. So if you're taking notes this morning, we have two points that we want to consider. Two points as we outline our text. We have the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 1 through 8. And we have the command by Jesus in verses 9 through 13. Jesus is transfigured. In verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now after six days. He makes this statement, right? Some of you won't see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And it says, now after six days that Jesus took Peter, he took James, he took John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. So as we consider the transfiguration of Jesus, this first point where we're looking at, there are eight things we want to consider about his transfiguration. The first of which is the time. The timing of this transfiguration. Look at verse 1 again. Now after six days. Right, so Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to follow me, if your desire is to be for me, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and you need to follow. Right? He tells them that this world has nothing to offer. He says, he says, if you gain this whole world, you've gained nothing. But to follow me. And then he tells them that they're going to see the Son of Man in his glory. And so the gospel writers tell us that six days, six days pass. Right? He's given them this hard saying, this difficult truth. What does it mean to pick up my cross? What does it mean to deny myself? What does it mean I'm going to see the Son of Man in his glory? Six days. Verse 
You know, what's interesting is when the gospel was written, it wasn't written with these chapter distinctions, right? It wasn't written with these different verses. It would have gone right from verse 28 into verse 1 of 17, right, with no break, six days. He says, there are some standing here which will not taste death till the Son of Man has been seen in his glory. What were they thinking about? Right? They've had almost a week to kind of consider, right? Kind of talk amongst themselves. I'm sure they probably chatted amongst each other. Like, what what does he mean by that? What does this look like? What is... How do we do that? Which brings us to the, the second thing we want to consider about Jesus' transfiguration. Not just the timing of it, right? It, was, it happens six days after this statement. But also the disciples who get to see it. You see, it wasn't everybody that got to see this transfiguration. It says there again in verse 1 that there were three of them. That Jesus took Peter, he took James, and he took John, his brother. Three disciples. Peter, James, and John. Often we might refer to them as the inner circle. Right? These were the three that Jesus spent more time with than the rest of the disciples. You know, and it could be that Jesus had special plans for, for these three. I mean, after all, it was Peter, James, and John that were allowed into the house when Jesus rose Jairus' daughter, right? In Luke 8, 51, when he came to the house, right, the house of, of Jairus, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John and the father and the mother of the girl, right? So the other nine stayed outside the house while Peter, James, and John got to go inside and witness this miracle. How about in Mark chapter 14? Right when they, play, uh, when they came to the place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, he took James, and he took John with him. And he began to be troubled deeply and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. Stay here and watch. So he brings his disciples there into the, into the garden. But then he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden. Right? That they get to kind of watch and see his anguish as he prayed. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, God. And it's Peter, James, and John that get to see this. They get to witness that. So it could be that Jesus had some, some special plans for these three men to give them a little extra tutelage, extra preparation as they would become some of the pillars of the early church. But it could also very well be that Jesus just couldn't let these three out of his sight. Not even for a minute, right? I mean, after all, it was James and John that were called the sons of thunder, Right, that they wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy a village. And Jesus is like, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't leave you guys alone. Who knows what will happen? 
Maybe Jesus just needed to keep a, a closer eye on these three. I mean, Peter, come on. You give Peter an inch, he's going to take a mile. But these are the guys that were close with Jesus. These were the guys that he took up on the mountain. He said, come with me. I want to show you something. I want you to see something. His majesty, his glory, his kingdom. You know, in fact, Peter, Peter talks about this. Right? In Second Peter, in, in Peter's second epistle, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son, Peter says, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This stuck. This resonated with Peter. right? And he writes about it later on in his epistle. I heard the voice of God. I saw Jesus in his majesty. I was there. John. John says in his gospel, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14... Right, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. We saw it. That these three disciples got to be there and got to witness this amazing, amazing thing. And it's interesting, right, because... John doesn't specifically write about the transfiguration. He mentions it there in chapter 1, but he doesn't give us the account of it happening, right? Only Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us this. Interesting, Matthew wasn't on the mountain. Mark wasn't up on the mountain. Luke wasn't there. It was Peter, James, and John that were there. But yet they evidently were able to describe it well enough for these three gospel writers to give us this account, to tell us what it was like. Right, Peter talks about it in his epistle. John mentions it in his, uh, in his um, gospel. What about James? James was there. Well, James didn't have time to write anything, did he? All right, church tradition tells us that he was beheaded for his faith. All right, the book of James was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John. So we have these three men that witness this transfiguration of Jesus. So we have the time, we have the people that were there, but the place, the place of this transfiguration, the third thing we consider about his about his glory is it took place on a high mountain, right? Again, back in verse 1, it says it took place on a high mountain. Now, Jesus brings them to this high mountain, right? Now, if, if you were to visit Israel today, if you were to go on an Israel tour, right, the tour guides are going to take you to a place 
called Mount Tabor. And they're going to tell you that this is the site of the Transfiguration. In fact, there's a church on the top of Mount Tabor called the Church of the, of the Transfiguration. And it very well could be. You see, they don't tell us exactly what mountain this was, so we don't technically know which one it was. But Mount Tabor is... 1,886 feet high, 1,886 feet above sea level. Now, for a perspective or a frame of reference, right, Mount Washington, right, the highest peak in our state, stands at 6,288 feet above sea level. So Mount Washington is three times taller than Mount Tabor. Not sure Mount Tabor really qualifies as a high mountain. But, if you remember from last week in chapter 16, that they're there and they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And you know where uh, Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is a high mountain. Mount Hermon stands at 9,332 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in that area, the area in which they were previously. So it could be that it was Mount Hermon that Jesus took them to. And again, this is just free information. I don't actually know what mountain it was because Scripture doesn't tell us what mountain it was. What we do know is that it was a high mountain, What we do know is that Jesus took them out on a mount. So Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, you can make up your own decision. I kind of like the Mount Hermon idea if you couldn't tell. But scripture isn't 100% sure. It's just a high mountain. So we have the time, we have the people, we have the place. What about the change? The change that takes place, the change of Jesus. It says there in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. Transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. You can speak it right into English, right? Metamorphosis. Something physically changed with Jesus. You know, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, that he made himself, speaking of Jesus, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus took on the form of a man, the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. But here, on the mountain, with Peter, James, and John, he is transfigured. He is metamorpho. He is changed. Metamorpho in the Greek is a compound word. Meta meaning after, and morpho, meaning form. So literally, after form. The form that comes after. He is uh, metamorphosist. 
a form that comes after, or a, we might say a secondary form. It carries the idea of an ex- external change in appearance. And that's what these disciples witness. That's what Peter, James, and John see. They see an external change in their Messiah. Right? But Paul tells us he put on man. He put on humanity. You know, we have an example of this in nature, don't we? Right? You, you probably know where I'm going with this, right? We have this picture of the, the caterp- caterpillar becoming the butterfly, right? That this caterpillar goes through this metamorphosis where it changes in physical appearance, right? It is different. Right? When it comes out of that cocoon, it is different than how it went in. Here's the thing, though. If you look this up and you do a little research, the DNA of that caterpillar does not change. The DNA is still the change, or still the same, rather. The caterpillar's DNA is the same as the butterfly's DNA. In other words, the butterfly, or the butterfly is always still the caterpillar, and the caterpillar was always the butterfly. It just goes through a metamorphosis. So what happens is the cells within the caterpillar start to produce different proteins. And those different proteins cause this mass physiological change within the caterpillar. But the DNA is the same. The DNA is being expressed differently as it becomes the butterfly. But they are the same. And the reason I point this out, the reason I say this is because Jesus is the same. In fact, right, Jesus didn't just stop being God, right, because he took on flesh. That Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He is to be glorified. The Bible is clear. Jesus is God. John 10, 30. John 20, 28. Hebrews 1, 8. Isaiah 9, 6. 1 John 5, 20. Romans 9, 5. The Bible is replete on who Jesus is. In fact, I would argue the real miracle is that Jesus most of the time could keep from displaying his glory. Because that's who he is. And he is to be glorified. Jesus here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus here is unveiling his true nature. Who he really is. That he's allowing his true nature to poke through and to give us a glimpse of his glory, his majesty. And Peter, James, and John get to see it firsthand. They were there. Jesus says, Some of you standing here will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And they see it. But what's interesting is John. John gets to see it again, doesn't he? Right? If you've read the end of the book, if you know, John is there, exiled on the island of Patmos. And he gets a visit, again, from a glorified 
Messiah. There in Revelation chapter 1, picking up in verse 12, it says, Then I turned, John speaking, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden brand. His head and hair were, uh, were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Sound familiar? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, gets to see a glorified Christ a second time. Now, why is this so significant? Why is this important for us, right? They see Jesus transfigured there on the mount, right? It says, right, that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. I think it's Mark's gospel where, where Mark says that, that his clothes were, were whiter than could be laundered. It's almost, like, it's almost like Mark's job was to do the laundry, and he's like, I couldn't get clothes that clean if I tried. Right? This change happens. He's metamorphosed, uh, he morphs in front of them, transfigured. Why is it important? Why is it significant? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, right? Verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What did he just tell his disciples before this? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Paul tells us, right, that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he says there in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's our word, metamorpho in the Greek. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, Jesus was transformed, metamorpho, in front of his disciples. And he's giving a picture, right, that for those of us who belong to Christ, those of us who call him our Lord and our Savior, that there should be a transformation that takes place in our own lives where we can answer that call and say, Jesus, yes, I want to deny myself. Yes, I want to put others first. Yes, I want you to be the center of my life. I want to be obedient to you. God, transform me. Make me someone different than my rotten flesh, my no good self. Paul tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove 
what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Question. Who wants to be in the center of God's will? I know I do, right? That is the safest place to be, is exactly where he wants us. You know, sometimes we think of of these missionaries, right, that we support, right, these families that have uprooted their lives, put themselves in places like the Middle East. But if that's where God wants them, that is the safest place for them. I want to be in the center of God's will for my life. Whatever that looks like, wherever that is, that's where I want to be. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You see, as we pick up our cross, as we follow Jesus, we are changed. We are transformed into a new creation. Right? And that change, that change isn't external. That change is internal. You see, what those three disciples saw on that mountain, what Peter, James, and John saw was an external change in Jesus, revealing his true internal nature, who he really is. But for us, our change is eternal, internal. It's inside. Jesus changes us from the inside out. Hopefully, right, as that internal change begins to happen in our lives, it leads to an external application. Right? The things that we do, the things that we say, the places we put ourselves are dictated because of who Jesus is in our lives. Because we've seen and because we know a resurrected Lord right, who has saved us, who has made us and washed us white as snow. Right? These disciples see a glorified Jesus, right? There's Mark going. His clothes are so clean. And as if Jesus is saying, but you can be that clean if you would follow me, if you would trust me with your life. If you would make me the center of everything you do. Second Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, again, transformed. There's our Greek word, metamorpho. Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And there's the key, right? If we want to be transformed, if we want this transforming power in our life, we need to surrender to the Spirit of the Lord. We need to surrender to his spirit in our lives. Well, we not only have the timing, the people that were there. I'm sorry, we, uh, the disciples that were there. But there were other people that were there too, right? It wasn't just Peter, James, and John. It wasn't just Jesus transformed or transfigured before them, No. There are two others that were there, right? In verse 3, Moses and Elijah are seen, right? They say, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Amazing. I think this is amazing because here's Peter, James, and John, and they're sitting there going, that's Moses. That's Elijah. Moses lived 1,400 years before them. 
Elijah 900 years before them, yet they know that's Moses, that's Elijah. That's amazing to me that in that moment, we have this picture, I think, of the law and the prophets, right? Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. Elijah was a picture of of the prophets. And I think this is pointing to and speaking of Jesus. It is all about Jesus. What does the law do? The law points to Jesus. What did the prophets do? They point to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 5, right, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tiller will tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Jesus says, I didn't come to to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And there is a picture of the law and the prophets there talking with Jesus as he is transfigured, transformed. The glory of God. In fact, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about his glory. So let's look at how they respond. Right? They, res- they respond. Or most notably, Peter responds. Right? Our favorite disciple. And Peter, in all of his excitement, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Jesus, it's a good thing we're here. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Peter didn't know what he was saying. He's just caught up in the moment. And I can, I, I can understand that. I can kind of relate a little bit, right? We get excited. When God is doing something amazing, it's easy to get excited. You can almost see Jesus standing there going, yeah, of course it's good you're here. That's why I brought you here. That's why you're here. Proverbs 17, 20, say, Proverbs 20, let's try that again. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. You know, I heard a pastor once say that, you know, we, we, he was talking about when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, right? And Peter's like, oh, no, Lord, not my feet, right? Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. You know, and, and this pastor was kind of like, we don't know much about Peter's feet, right? We don't, we don't know, you know, if he was shameful of his feet for some reason. He said, the only thing we do know about Peter's feet is that they fit perfectly inside his mouth. And here he is, right, putting his foot in his mouth. Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Let's make some tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the problem is, is that there's Jesus in his glory. And Peter's bringing him down to the same level as Moses and Elijah, right? Right? 
Jesus, I'm going to make a tabernacle for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Man, it's so good to be here. Sometimes it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. James 1.19 says that, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. And we know Peter, right? Peter was, was quick to speak. But he also got it right, right? I mean, just, just not a moment, just a few days ago, right? He was like, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That's who you are, right? And Jesus is, you know, commending Peter for that. But Peter gets kind of caught up in the moment. Then Jesus gives them this command. Right? There is this command given at the transfiguration. Um, sorry, not Jesus' command. The Father gives a command. Right? Something happens. Right? This cloud forms. And this voice speaks from the cloud. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And I like what this says, right? In verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So picture it. Peter's still talking. He's still hyped up in the moment. You can almost picture it, right? It's so good. It's so good to be here. We've got to make some tap. In fact, there's some... There's some uh, so there's a down tree over here. We can, we can gather the branches and start making tabernacles, right? He's still talking and, behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. Peter's still talking and this cloud overshadows them and this voice from the cloud, the Father in heaven proclaiming, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's almost as if God was up there saying, Peter, cool it. Listen to him. It's all about Jesus Hear him. Just stop talking for a moment. You ever get caught up in the moment? I mean, can can, can you relate with Peter in this story? I mean, I know I can. I know I can. You ever get get excited when God is doing something amazing in your life? And and more importantly, not just that he's doing something, but you're recognizing that he's doing something, right? Like you're there in the moment, right? And it's like, this is important. This is pivotal. This is amazing. And what's the first thing you do? Or or, or maybe the first thing I do, right? Pick up that phone. I got to tell somebody. Man, listen, God is doing this amazing thing in my life. I mean, this is so cool, right? And the other end of the phone, hey, that's cool, good. And it just, it kind of falls flat, right? And you're like, what? But this is so exciting. This is amazing. You know, and I think sometimes it's because that word is for you. And maybe somebody else doesn't quite get as excited by it because it's not the word that's for them. Right? That God's doing something in your life and you're recognizing it and you're responding to it because it's for you. And I think the point here is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, right? Hebrews chapter 11 is this amazing chapter of faith. 
these stories of men and women that responded in faith. And in verse 2 it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, at the end of the day, when God is doing something, when Jesus is moving in our lives, it's about him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. We need to be looking unto him. He needs to be the focus. He needs to be the center. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what matters. We need to be focused on Jesus. We need to be listening to him, keeping that eternal picture, denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following him. The father says, this is my son. This is my son. This is my beloved son. This is who I'm well pleased in. Listen to him. And I love the graciousness of our adoption. Right? Think about that. He's adopted us. We belong to him. Right? If we've, if we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and our personal Savior, we belong to him. We've been adopted. We've been grafted in. Right? God says, this is my beloved son. This is my son. This is who I'm pleased in. This is the focus. This glorified man right here, this is my son. With such a son, the Lord has no need of children. Think about it. He has no need of children. He did not make us his children because he needed sons. No. He made us his children because we needed a father. That's not mine. That's Spurgeon. Spurgeon also says, If Peter be our master, let us call him so. If Calvin be our master, let us call him so. If Wesley our master, let us call him so. But if we be disciples of Jesus, let us also follow Jesus and follow him with other men only so far as we perceive that they are following Christ. If we claim to belong to him, we claim to be his, we need to be following him. That he needs to be the center of our lives, the center of everything we do. And so the last thing that Jesus does at this transfiguration is he comforts his disciples. And I, and I love this. He touches them. This voice comes from heaven, right? And they fall prostrate, right? They're on their knees, their faces to the ground. They know they're in the presence of God the Father. And they go down, right? And it says, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces. They were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise. Do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. They saw no one but Jesus. And I, I love this because they get, they get caught up in the moment, right? They're, they're excited at what's going on. I mean, there's Moses, there's Elijah, 
There's Jesus in his glory. And in that moment, they find themselves on their hands and knees before an almighty God. And there's the comfort of our Lord, the compassion of Jesus who reaches down and it says he touches them. He touches them. And in that moment, in that moment, who do they see? Right? The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah, gone. It is only Jesus. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Jesus needs to be the center. Jesus is the focal point. It's all about him. That is where we need to be. We need to come to a place where we only see Jesus. Right? We come to that place where we fall prostrate before the Lord. And we've been there. I know we all have been, right? Those moments where it's like the world has, has come against us, right? And we don't know where else to turn. And, and there's that touch of our Lord. And we look up, and it's only him, right? He's the only one worth seeing. He's the only one that should be the center. Listen, it is all about Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We should not be ashamed of him. He should be the center of everything. We have to hurry. We only have like 45 minutes left. So the second point this morning is there in verses 9 through 13, right? He gives them this command. (laughs) He gives them this command, right? They come down. They have this amazing experience. They come down from the mountain, and Jesus commands them, saying, tell this vision to no one, right? Tell no one. Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And it's at that point... In verse 13, that the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So they have this amazing experience. And Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Say nothing until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He just told them that he's going to suffer many things. And now he tells them that he will be raised from the dead. Tell no one. And again, I think, and I've kind of already mentioned this point, but it's a simple point. Tell no one. For starters, the simple point, it might be obvious, but worth mentioning, is that this was for Peter, James, and John. For whatever reason, this was for them. This experience He brought them three up on the mountain and no one else. 
And I think sometimes that's the point, right? Is that sometimes the Lord is doing something in our lives and what we're going through, that's for us. And people can come alongside us and comfort us. They can counsel us. They can pray for us. But oftentimes what we're going through, it's for us, right? He's brought us to that place to do something in our lives. And that in that moment, Jesus is speaking to you. He's doing something for you. And it's not that you can't tell somebody that God's doing something in your life, but you know, maybe we just need to, to spend some time seeking him before we just go run and tell everybody about what's going on. Either way, they've been commanded not to say anything. And then they ask this question, and they're like, hey, well, what about this whole Elijah? I mean, they just saw Elijah, right? They just saw him. And they're like, well, how come the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? And they, and they get this from, from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming, the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So Malachi says that Elijah will come first, that he is going to send Elijah. And their question is, well, why does it look like Elijah came second? I mean, Jesus, you're here, and yet now we've seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Like, why, why has he... They say Elijah comes first, and yet we just saw him now. And so Jesus answers his disciples in, in verses 11 through 12, right? He says to them, Elijah is coming. He is coming first, and he'll restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they didn't know him. So which is it? Has he come already, or is Elijah coming? And the answer is yes. Right? Because in, in, in verse 13, they, it says that they know and they understood that what he was talking about was John the Baptist. Right? That John the Baptist came in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. Right? Jesus said that Elijah has come and will come. And that John the Baptist was a, a type, a picture in fact, Jesus says it, right? In, in Matthew eleven fourteen. if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who has come, speaking of John the Baptist. He is Elijah who is to come. He says in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah. 
But then Jesus says Elijah will come. He has come, but he will come. Again, Malachi 4, 5, right? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of, and notice what it says, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Right? And you see, we know that there's two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming, right, was to sacrifice himself for us. But his second coming is when he, he comes in glory. And so Jesus' second coming, we believe, will be preceded by Elijah the prophet. Right? When Jesus comes back after this, the seven years of tribulation. In fact, in, in Revelation 19, it says Jesus comes back and, and on his robe and on his thigh is the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when he comes back, Elijah will have preceded him. It, in Revelation 11.3, it says, When I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And presumably Elijah will be one of those two witnesses, and most scholars believe Moses will be the other. But here's the thing. Regardless of who those two witnesses are, right, that, that hasn't happened yet. What matters is who they're pointing to. Right? And again, it's the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the question that we have to answer this morning. Is, is Jesus the center? Is Jesus at the center of everything you do, everything you say, everywhere you go, is it for him and for his purposes to see his kingdom go forth? To see him glorified in our lives? I hope so. I hope we can say this morning that Jesus is at the center. And so, Lord, we, we thank you. We praise you for your word, Lord. And God, we know we don't have time, that there's so much more we could talk about about this amazing passage. But God, at the heart of it, I hope that we come away with the fact that you need to be the center of it all. God, that you are at work in our lives. God, you are doing something in our lives. And we need to come to a place this morning where we are willing to make that sacrifice where we are willing to lay it all down, to say, Jesus, I will deny myself. I will pick up my cross. I will follow you. Jesus, where are you leading me? Where are you taking me? How are you guiding me? I want to follow. Because, quite frankly, there is no one else worthy to be followed. That there is nothing else in my life that should deserve that kind of attention but you. And so, God, my heart, my prayer this morning is that we can answer that call. We can come to that place like Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. God, that we could live in a state of mind where we see you in your glory. And that we would seek to be obedient unto you. So God, we thank you for this morning. We praise you this morning. 
And would you be high and lifted up in our lives? Would you go before us the rest of today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.